This is the Grumpy PA Podcast, where we bring new Army PAs a little bit of professional development and a touch of battlefield medicine. All right, guys, welcome back to the Grumpy PA Podcast. This week, we have the opportunity to talk to uh, Tyler, an anesthesiologist. Uh, I'm really excited about this talk because I am a complete dumbass when it comes to medication. Like, I really haven't touched it in a couple years, and, and during PA school, uh, we had the basic pharmacology piece. Um, once I got into the clinical phase of PA school, it was you know hard and fast and really dependent on what you walked into. I was able to make some time and get up to the anesthesia stuff uh, and, and do a little bit of, of tube throwing and, and making sure that I was able to put some patients down. But man, that was over two years ago now, and I really haven't touched the drugs since then. And I know what the CPG guidelines tell me, but it's all book learning. Um, so I am looking forward to this just from the fact of like, let's talk about some mechanisms action. Let's talk about some drugs, what's good to carry, uh, and what's more realistic for you guys and what's going to fit in your aid bag. Grumpy, you've got some background with this stuff as well. Before the show, you were kind of giving us a little bit of your experience. Can you give us a, a little background on what you saw coming out of uh, PA school? Oh yeah, you bet. So welcome, Tyler. Are you ready for me to tell you a story? Yes, I'm ready for a story. Oh, all right, here comes the story. <laughs> I'm an infantryman. And then I go to PA school, and I read about ketamine, and the next time I see or do anything with it, I'm headed into Afghanistan with vials that I'm handing out to my medics, and I've never actually dosed a patient with it. And now I'm on the front end of their immediate care with ketamine, fentanyl, and all of the goodies, and my experience level is probably next. You ready for the kicker? Yes. That's every single PA that we basically <laughs> graduate out of our programs. Uh, they, they don't get the opportunity to really play with these medications and sure. dose people and see how they sure. react to them in a safe environment with a good learning uh, uh, mechanism in place. And so all of a sudden, you've got a screaming, wounded uh, person that you're really amped up and you want to do something to help them and uh, you're probably pulling out some drugs that you're not really familiar with. So with that as kind of our context, I would love to get into to this conversation and talk about what we're going to see from the trauma medicine side and when the, the medic reaches into their bag and they pull out probably a fentanyl lollipop or some ketamine, they're going to try and spray up his nose. Uh, what can they expect? What do they need to look for? What do, what do our PAs need to be aware of? as they kind of reach into this little bit deeper bag and maybe pull out some midazolam or some IV IM fentanyl or, or even are headed down the pathway of maybe having to do an intubation uh, or sedate somebody long-term that they just criked. And so that's kind of the context of our conversation from there. Are you excited? I am excited. I do love it. So, and I can tell the same thing. I mean, obviously, like, anesthesia is a very interesting specialty as far as, like, what we get trained for. In medical school, you really don't learn much about anesthesia, and you don't really learn about anesthetic drugs. You just kind of happen to fall into anesthesia one. And so it's the same thing. Like, the first time we use it, you're always just like, oh, man, I don't know. This seems like a lot, or this seems like not enough. And you kind of you kind of gauge it from there. And, yeah, we have, obviously, like, there's recommended doses and stuff, but you just kind of eventually get a feel for the dosing, I think, more so than, like, using hard and fast numbers consistently, especially for... These types of medications, um, you know, the, the dosing, I, I get more specific when it comes to pressors and other other medications, reversal agents, stuff like that. But for pain and sedation, you know, I, I know my upper limits kind of, and I know the lower limits, and then I just hone it in between there. I think that's probably in a stressful situation that sometimes, the, you know, these medics and PAs might find themselves in trying to remember an exact number and doing a, a dead-on calculation is a huge waste of time. Right. And you don't sometimes you don't have that type of time. So what, what, I think the best thing to do would be kind of 
go over what your high, we'll go over what kind of like high and low ends are and then kind of like how I, how I view patients in these settings and determine, you know, where we go with the dose is what I'm saying. No, that's, that's cool. So Paul, you were talking back in your, in your heyday of, uh, medicing, you kind of had two doses, right? And so uh, it was small dose, big dose, uh, small problem, small dose, big problem, big dose. Is that, is that kind of how you attack it? Yeah. So as, as far as ketamine goes, really like I'm a 20 milligrams or hundred milligrams kind of guy. Cause I, again, you know, when I'm thinking about stuff, I'm dumb, I, like straight up, you know, like I don't remember a lot of this stuff. And, and when my blood pressure is going, I definitely am not remembering it and I don't want to remember it. So the easy thing for me was, was 20 and a hundred with ketamine. Um, like it, is that a reasonable approach? You know, most of our patients are somewhere between 80 and 100 kilograms, right? So disassociative versus sub-disassociative pain dose, like that seems pretty reasonable. Obviously titrate to effect, but. Yeah, it so it depends on what you're going for there as well, right? So with as far as if we're, if we're going to talk pain, like strictly, we're not inducing the patient. We're not planning on throwing a tube in. We're not planning on cranking this guy. Pain-wise, I would look anywhere from like 0.1 to 0.5 kilograms. So. Um, you, we're saying our patient, you know, we're saying most of these people are 80 to a hundred kilos, you know, so that's putting you anywhere in that, like, I would always go on the higher end. I would go to 0.5. I think that just makes the math easy. It's just half, right? So you're like, all right, well, that's 40 to 50 milligrams. So, I I mean, I I think 20 is a reasonable starting dose. You're not going to hurt anybody by giving them 20 to 30 more as your initial, like, Hey, here's your, here's your first bump, right? Here's your, let, and let's see how this, how you respond. So if you give 40, you got to give it a, a couple minutes though. You know, what you don't want to be doing is getting into this like, I push it, hey, I don't see a response in three minutes or an improvement. I'm going to push more and then you're like, I still haven't seen a response. Let me push a little bit more. Next thing you know, you're given 120 milligrams in the span of five minutes, right? And this was a patient that you weren't trying to induce. You weren't trying to put a tube in and now the patient's super sedated, kind of cade hold out and now you have to, that's another thing you have to worry about. I think, I think having that high and low dose like you have, a 20 and 100, I think that's absolutely safe and fine. It's always easier to give more medication than it is to take it away, right? So if you start with 20, you wait, I would recommend you wait like five to 10 minutes to see that initial response is. They might not need any more. You'd be like, all right, well, 20 was a good number for you. It was a good start. If there's still like, hey, I'm still, you know, I'm still having a lot of pain. I'm not comfortable. You know, then you can say, all right, well, let's let, let's go up to that 0.5 mg per kg dose, right? Let's go to that higher level and give that. That way you're not compounding as much. You're not going like, hey, I'm giving 40, 40, 40. You're giving like, hey, 20, 40, and then 40. So, right, that's like, a, that's a decent difference in, the, in a much larger time frame. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. So I guess, so when you reassess like five minutes later and they're good now, am I going to keep that 20 milligram dose or do I need to... Like, how do I keep that going? Because, you know, if I'm sitting on this guy for a couple of hours before EVAC comes, I'm going to burn through piles of drug. Well, the hope is that it, it you, you you don't need to uh, continue to dose it every 15 to 30 minutes. The hope is that you, know, you get ahead of whatever the pain cycle is that they're currently on. And then that ketamine sustains. Now, I'm not saying like you're going to have every 20 to every 15 to 30 minutes, you're going to redose. Um, but it's a possibility if they continue to respond to only 20 milligrams, I would only continue to give 20 milligrams. I would only escalate in the setting that that 20 milligrams of ketamine wasn't covering them anymore in those intervals. And you don't necessarily have to dose every 30 minutes if he's comfortable, right? You can wait, you know, you can wait another 15 minutes afterwards. Um, it really just depends on the patient themselves. You, you want to 
you want to you you don't want to be algorithmic with it, right? You want to have you want to have an algorithm to get you to the point of assessing the patient, but you don't want to be algorithmic with like every patient is the same, right? Everyone that's not because that doesn't work that way. Everyone's different. So when do you start to see these uh, these funky feelings? Uh, <laughs> is it the lower lower doses? I, I've seen some some uh, abdominal pain rule outs that sure. evac to us here at the the rule three in the theater where we are. And they, uh, they're getting managed kind of at the rule two with some, some morphine, maybe a little dilated, and they get on the bird and the flight paramedic doesn't have a protocol for dilated, mm -hmm. but they do have a protocol for ketamine. Mm -hmm. And so they go like, Hey, ketamine works for pain. They give ketamine. And then this wide eyed patient gets off the bird and is like, please don't ever do that to me again. <laughs> what, are, what are they going through that they are not liking about that? Yeah. So, um, what I would say with, with in regards to dosing and as far as, again, you're, you're talking about the psychosis side effects, the like um, the, the walls are melting, the, you know, stuff like that. Obviously, the higher doses, you're going to see it, right? And so the, the higher the dose you give, the more you want to start really to consider giving some sort of benzodiazepine adjunct to help prevent that psychosis. Now, I'm not saying that 10 milligrams of ketamine isn't going to cause at least some sort of derivative of, of psychosis state, right? Because it is a PCP derivative. It's an NDNA antagonist. That causes that. Right? that, like, that the just the mechanism itself of ketamine will cause those side effects. Yeah, the chances of you have seeing everyone's face melt on 10 milligrams of ketamine is probably pretty low. You're probably just going to get your analgesic effect with that. But it doesn't mean that everyone's the same. Some people, you know, might be way more sensitive to it and you give them 10 to, 50, 10 to 20 milligrams of ketamine and all of a sudden they're like, yeah, I didn't like that. I didn't like that at all. That was, that was trippy. Um, so if you had the option, you know, if you're going to do larger doses, if you're going to continue to dose a patient, uh, giving that benzo adjunct isn't a terrible idea, depending on the setting that you're in. I don't know if I would give a benzo to a guy with an abdom with abdominal pain on, on a getting off a bird, uh, you know, just because they got ketamine. But if you're giving in the setting that we were kind of referring to earlier, where you're sitting on a patient for a couple hours and you're constantly dosing ketamine, I think that is a very appropriate use of a benzodiazepine adjunct. That's, that's awesome. Is, is, so, so that said, that, that benzo there that you're kind of giving gives a little bit of anxiolysis mm -hmm. uh, and a little bit of amnestic effect, hopefully, is what we're kind of after, I think. Um, is there anybody in our kind of trauma setting that we're going to want to avoid that in? I mean, we know that benzos kind of cause some hypotension, a little bit sure. of respiratory depression that's kind of known. And uh, we certainly would be like, geez, you know, I don't want my patient to stop breathing or uh, become hypotensive. They're already bleeding out. Right. I'm trying to chase that down. Right. Um, when, when do I, when, when, when would you be like shy with that uh, uh in, in a patient that seems to kind of be there, but is kind of having a little trippy effect. Sure. You expect it to be. So the, I get the big thing that I would worry about, the two big things would be uh, hypotension and then uh, depressed respirations with your benzos. Um, so you really want to gauge that on the patient. Now, if the patient is hypotensive because they're bleeding out and you're not being able to volume resuscitate them in that, set, in that, in that position, I would avoid the benzo because you, you don't want to drop them out totally, right? And it, it could just be two to five milligrams of, of, of a midazolam that could cause, you know, even further hypotension that you're already fighting a bigger issue. You don't, don't compound that problem for yourself. Same thing as, and as patients become more and more hypotensive, you know, typically their respirations and stuff slow, they're, you know, they're becoming more likely to require mechanical or up top intubation or a crike or whatever. 
Um, so doing adding that benzo also creates that problem as well too. So you're also kind of going down that sedative pathway of causing respiratory depression and whatnot. Now, if you're in the setting where, hey, I am volume resuscitating this patient, I have bleeding control, I have a tourniquet on, whatever it might be, whatever the, whatever the, the source might be, I would be, I would be a little bit more um, willing to say like, hey, give that benzo, give, even if it's two milligrams, give something to just kind of help that, that guy, that trauma patient get through that anxiety, that, that uh, excuse me, psychosis aspect of those ketamine doses. But that you have to make that assessment on that patient. You have to know that you're controlling. You're you're trying to get volume back into the patient at that time. That's probably what I would I would recommend. I, uh, that's kind of how I gauge it as well. And you can always give ketamine, even these you know these hypotensive bleeding patients. Give ketamine, eventually get them back to being resuscitated, and then give them a DAS. Right. You don't necessarily have to have these two syringes and be like put one two at the same time. You can wait in between. Get yourself in a better place. Give them a DAS. It causes amnesia. Typically, it's not retrograde, mm. but we do see some retrograde amnesia with MEDAS. Even though that's not the indication, that's not what the label says. I mean, I, I take patients to surgery all the time, and I give them a DAS, and they're like, man, I don't even remember coming in this morning. So, you know, it, it does, there, there has to be some sort of element to it. And especially when you're receiving other medications such as ketamine, and if you got fentanyl or whatever it might be, um, the chances of them remembering that that is going to be pretty low. Yeah, so. I, I, I like that, man, as you kind of talk about it. I think, you know, now, uh, now that I'm out of the role one scenario, I'm up in the ER, I, I'm a little more familiar with these drugs and kind of throw them around a little more. And uh, there's there's a, a pathway, there's a continuum in the resuscitation where I'm behind the eight ball and I don't have bleeding control and I don't have access and I don't have blood hung. But somewhere in that pathway, and this is true at the point of injury and along the way, is you, you get pretty confident you got bleeding control you got good access you now have something hung for fluids you know hopefully some some blood and at that point maybe you know maybe that takes you five ten minutes mm -hmm. to get that under control where you're working it and at that point you reach in the bag and the medaz comes out mm -hmm. um but you gave the the ketamine right up front you know you, you had to get the pain kind of under control and so maybe they get nine minutes of uh people's faces melting and then yeah. and, and then it gets better uh it's better than nothing and i think that knowing that in the setting of uh um uh, some of the stories that you hear about this medication particularly i, I want to reference back and i'll put a, a link in the show notes to this ketamine essay by an 18 delta that that uh, stepped on a pressure plate and spent about the next 30 days on ketamine in various places from point of injury through his evac and into the hospital and he talks about like I think his ultimate end state is, will you please give a midazolam or a benzo or some sort of anxiolysis, something that gives me some uh, some amnesia because that was the, it was miserable. It was a miserable 30 days. And uh, that that's worth a read, but it's also worth a read in understanding that, you know, the patient's status may not support it, even though this guy is crying out and telling you a, a horror story that maybe you need to take that with a grain of salt and know where does it fit to appropriately get that midaz in. Um, certainly would want to, but if I'm if I'm fighting against that hypotension and I can't get the blood on board as fast as possible, yeah, I might I might not pull that out of the bag right away. So uh, we've been talking a lot about ketamine, and I think that that's I mean it's a great drug. It's a hot drug right now because it, it seems like it's got you know minimal impact on blood pressure. It's got minimal impact on uh, respiratory drive. But is there anything else that might be beneficial to carry? We've also talked about uh, midazolam um, as an something to go with the ketamine. Um, but is there anything else that like abdominal pain, maybe I shouldn't be giving ketamine. There's something else that I, I should carry in my aid bag on a regular basis, right? I've got small limited space, but is there something else in there that I need to be carrying? 
going into Afghanistan, I took away NSAIDs from my from my medics. So I was like, hey, no NSAIDs have an antiplatelet effect. I don't want you putting antiplatelets on people out here where they might have a bleed event. And so I was like, I want you to avoid that. I would let them carry some uh, some some Mobic and some Celebrex because mm-hmm. it didn't have that platelet effect. But I kind of took away an entire class of medication from them, and then uh, and then they were treating some abdominal pain, and they're like Tylenol didn't work, and so they taped a fentanyl lollipop on this cat, and I was like, oh my god, what are you? <laughs> like fine, take your NSAIDs back, like I'm sorry, uh, there's no need to go to fentanyl. Um, but in in the medics realm, you know, they they probably have fentanyl lollipops for your your conscious awake person. They probably are not going to be carrying IVIM fentanyl, but I probably would. Um, similar kind of concern profile there with some hypotension, some respiratory depression, uh, as, as concerns with fentanyl, but, um, as an adjunct, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's that kind of feathering of the thing that you're doing. Maybe they get a little ketamine, they get a little fentanyl. If they tolerate it, it kind of comes out of the bag later. Do you have, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think fentanyl, uh, is always a great option too. You, I, I, you gotta be versed in it. You have to be, you have to be knowledgeable of what you're pushing, uh, you have to really realize what the side effects are in a, in what you're doing when when you push fentanyl. I think you got to know the side effects of all medications, and I'm not not downplaying other medications, but I think ketamine. You know, you're kind of especially in these scenarios, you don't have to be as worried about the side effects. Fentanyl, it's very easy to bottom someone out pretty quickly, right? And if you don't know your doses and you don't know, you know what you're. Do- if you're not comfortable with that, then yeah, you can cause a big problem. I probably wouldn't stick. My, my escalation from abdominal pain would not be uh, Tylenol than a fentanyl lollipop. <laughs> Mine either. Sure. Mine yeah, either. <laughs> that's uh, that's a aggre- that's aggressive. Um, but if you could get something in between, you know, NSAIDs, and then if the, if NSAIDs are if Tylenol and NSAIDs aren't working together um, for whatever that pain might be, while you're trying to work it up, then yeah, you might need to go to something short acting such as fentanyl. Um, I would avoid your longer acting opioids now. I think they're kind of, I don't want to call them, I don't want to say they're dying out, but I think they're becoming way less popular and favorable because that's where you're seeing these long acting, you know, effects of opioid use is with these longer acting medications like morphine, hydromorphone. So for my medics, um, like as, as their provider, making sure that they're, they're covered and that they can take care of these patients, we're saying Tylenol Motrin, uh, you know, some Mobic, some kind of NSAID, um, we're talking about maybe a little bit of ketamine. Um, maybe if you really trust them, some midaz or, or some kind of benzo to help with that. Um, and then some fentanyl lollipops, I, they wouldn't get any kind of like injectable fentanyl and that should probably cover most of their stuff. Um, as far as pain management goes, I mean, is that anything that you would do differently or, or that you would recommend? No, not in that setting. I think that's a good stepwise escalation route of, as far as pain management. I think that I think that's reasonable. I think that's safe, and I think that's um, for what you have, what you're available with. I, I think that's the I think that's your best route. I, I think I would agree, and you know, with my roll one, roll two days behind me, that that's probably. I think what you're what you're getting in fentanyl for pain relief in a stable patient that you're not you know fighting hypotension and respiratory depression. You know, I'm I'm more of a a, a severe pain, uh, but I don't want to mess around with ketamine. And this is as a provider, not so much as a medic. Like what fentanyl gives me, it's pretty rapid. It's mm-hmm. pretty small doses, 25, 50 micrograms. Yeah. Um, but it's pretty short acting, right? So it's going to come off pretty fast. So I'm going to have to redose it. And so I might have in my pocket personally, uh, now being a little more comfortable a few years in, maybe some morphine. Uh, you know, and when I say in my pocket, I mean more like in the aid station to manage 
that longer term pain that I'm probably trying to manage, right? Like an appendicitis rule out kind of thing. Like, is this appendicitis? I don't know. Is this guy going to get a helicopter ride for a CT to find out? Probably. Um, and, you know, so then I can get morphine's going to give me a little longer acting uh, uh, pain control than fentanyl. I'm not going to have to redose quite as often. I'm still going to have to redose. But I, I, that's not something I'm going to have in my pocket for my trauma management. Yeah. That's going to be much more this the sick call patient that happens in. And I've got to be, you know, much the same way. i got to be worried about morphine and that category of drugs and what it's going to do. Um, I, I don't see, and I think unfortunately some places you might still walk into a roll one, roll two and find morphine. And you're like, whoa, what are you doing, man? Like, you're supposed to be in ketamine. I, I was actually pulling morphine out of medic's hands um, in the roll one. And I was like, no, no, we're taking ketamine into theater. We're not taking morphine. Um, but then I found myself, there's these little niches where, you know, it fits where you may be messing with that medication. I just don't think it's uh, at the point of injury uh, treating a trauma patient. You got to be real, real cautious with that. And I think that that caution what you're saying is that extends to the fentanyl the same way because of how quickly you can you can take a shitty situation and turn it into an extra shitty situation so the only other things so we, we've kind of covered pain management it seems like as far as like point of injury other things that uh, medics need to be carrying or, or providers for those point of injury role one antibiotic coverage uh and then some kind of like calcium txa um what kind of antibiotics are, are recommended i know the the t-tri-c guide i think they're still pushing out ertapenem and and uh ansef i think are the two that the cpg states is, is there anything that we like why would we choose one over the other down this pathway in the CPGs and what, what I understand and what we've seen here in the Rule 3 is that uh, those are absolutely it. Ertapenem, if it gets into the gut or you have any concern about a dirty wound near the, near the GI tract, um, is, is reasonable. Ansef or Cefazolin is, is your friend on pretty much anything else, skin, soft tissue, bone. Um, and then from there, there's some stuff out there, man. There's, uh, you know, people are starting to mess around with powdered vancomycin yeah. where they actually pour it into the wounds. And so we're starting to see that. But I think for the medic in the aid station, uh, and uh, cefazolin and ertapenem are, are perfectly reliable. If it gets near the gut, ertapenem, otherwise ansef's reasonable. Commonly, you know, you get spun up and they end up coming in. They've got both written on their TC3 card. You're like, okay, whatever, man. Yeah. Um, no big, no harm, no foul. Your TXAs and calciums, you know, like really get into the blood, uh, the blood side and really understand like how critical that is. You know, you're going to see calcium, as we kind of mentioned in the blood episode, it's probably sliding into that, that, uh, that diamond of death instead of that triad of death, right? So cal hypocalcemia is thought to be pretty common and, uh, and important in trauma just by itself, let alone blood loss. And then when you start adding, um, uh, yeah, transfusion, blood transfusions with the CPD and the binding of the calcium, like you're just going to drive them into hypo. You're going to take yeah. a hypocalcemic patient and drive them into hypocalcemia further. Yeah. So you got to be upfront pretty quick with the TXA and the calcium. Uh, and that's, that's kind of where I think the CPG does a great job laying that out for the role one, role two provider and medic on, on the pathway forward. Uh, you know, invariably there's always that question, what's first, the blood, the calcium or the TXA? Uh, and I think that's probably patient dependent if they're like almost dead probably the blood. Yeah, right. Yeah, for sure Yeah, the blood. I mean, I would never argue against giving blood first in any situation that you know You have hemorrhage from there. I think kind of the question is uh, one of the things we haven't talked about is kind of RSI um, And I only bring that up because this is kind of probably the next layer of drugs that uh, the providers probably gonna be running around with and we run into some problems down there in the rule one rule two where we don't have storage capability for some of the um, some of the, the refrigerated medications, in particular your rocuronium, your succinylcholine, your propofol, uh, those kind of things, 
And so um, we also kind of don't really talk a whole lot about endotracheal intubation. Uh, we talk a little bit about sedation and movement, but uh, in this situation where we're potentially on our way to intubating as opposed to criking, um, kind of what that pathway looks like. I know in the trauma bay for myself, I'm a huge fan of ketamine and succinylcholine, and I like that because I get the neuro exam back. You know, the sucks only hangs on for, you know, nine, ten minutes before it wears off, then I can kind of get back a neuro exam on somebody, and I, I know they're there, and anything that I do from there, I've done with drugs. Um, but there's some problems with succinylcholine, not the least of which is refrigeration. you got to watch out with, with, high, with um, hyperkalemia and heat injuries and any kind of burns and those kind of things where you're going to cause those issues. Um, and so kind of a safety fallback for me would be to go towards a rocuronium, which still has a refrigeration problem. Um, and so I got to kind of, I got to be thinking about that for my aid bag. And ultimately I'm going to end up at a non-refrigerated, uh, uh, product, which is probably going to be ketamine to induce them and put them down and a vecuronium to, uh, to paralyze them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, vex a smaller dose. It lasts about as long as, um, maybe even a little longer than rocuronium, yeah. which is not the nine, 10 minutes. You're going to paralyze them for 45, 60 minutes. Right. And we always tell the horror story about paralyzing somebody and then forget to give them sedation after yeah. where they can't tell you they're paralyzed. They just sit there and cry at you, uh, without moving. And, uh, you're like, Ooh, uh, but what are your thoughts there uh, if we start talking down this pathway where we, we're in this narrow window where it might happen, we're going to intubate, and we want to uh, induce and, and paralyze, and we're probably talking about VEC as our agent of choice. A trauma patient, if they've had, um, um, if they've been immobilized, if they have some sort of metabolic uh, deficiency or derangement, typically, though, you're going to worry about that stuff like 24 hours after injury. Same with burns. It's, it's 24 hours after the, the burn injury, right? And that's when you really start to worry about your using sucks in those patients. And to, really, you, you wouldn't want to use sucks in those patients because of the risk. Within that first 24 hours, though, like don't, don't hesitate to use it. Um, okay. Like it, it, you know, that's, it's our recommendation. It's safe. Um, you're not going to drive that potassium out of the cell quite as much as you are 24 hours after those injuries, okay? Uh, so if that's your choice, if that's what you have and you got a burn patient, don't, don't question yourself. Give do sucks if you're worried about a neuro exam as well. With rocky rhodium, yeah, you're gonna see about 45 minutes of downtime, uh, where you're probably not getting great response, you know, for your neuro exam. And then VEC's gonna be a little bit longer, probably anywhere. So rock would be anywhere from 45 to 60 minutes. Vecuronium would probably be, we talk about like 55 to 75 minutes. So you're probably getting a little bit longer uh, as you go up that tree. Um, but then in I still use ketamine even in the trauma bay for a lot of my intubations, uh, for my tra trauma intubations. I like to use, um, I, and I, I will use either, if I'm worried about neuro exam, yeah, we'll use sucks. I don't have a problem using rock though in those scenarios for myself if I'm not, if I'm not, if we're not worried about a neuro exam. Um, but now I'll, I'll use ketamine and I will also use propofol in my setting. Uh, I know that's not really super applicable to a lot of what we're talking about today. But I do use that as well, and then either sucks or rocky rhodium for my intubation. I dig that. Now you you had mentioned uh, before we started recording, kind of this drill that you used to do with this three uh, cc syringe of uh, happiness. Why don't you tell us <laughs> tell us more about this? So when I was a resident, uh, one of my one of my mentors, one of my attendings, he we used to do this this exercise, this mental exercise, where he would hand us a three cc syringe, and say, "All right, we're going to induce this patient with three cc's. So what what do you want to use? What 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 medications?" You know, you got to get amnesia, you got to get analgesia, you got to get relaxation, you got to get anesthesia, all, all in three cc's. There's multiple ways to do it, but the most, the, 
I think the easiest and probably the most applicable to what we're talking about today is to use high dose ketamine. So you're talking about either 50, mil, 50 milligrams or 100 mil, milligrams per ml, depending on what you have. Um, vecuronium, which is powdered, and then use a cc of uh, 5 mg per ml of midazolam. So you got one, one cc of midazolam, two cc's of ketamine, whether that's the 50 or, or the 100 milligrams per and then you reconstitute the the vecuronium with that three cc's. So you kind of you kind of cheat a little bit. You get you know you th- use three drugs when you really only used you know the 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 volume of two. Um, so then and then that's that that's the exercise and thinking like hey I got limited space I have limited resources how do I make this happen how do I make this work and how do I do it safely? There's no issues with putting all three of those medications in one syringe. No, there's no constitution, solute formation, or anything with those three medications, no. Once the paralytic wears off, right, like, is there any issue with keeping those guys in the tube, or can I keep them sedated enough? If you can use safe levels of ketamine to keep them sedated enough to that they can tolerate the endotracheal tube or the crike that was just placed, then by all means, I would probably just continue on with ketamine and avoid re-paralyzing these patients. If they're hyperstimulated, their sympathetic drives through the roof, they're not, and they're not tolerating that ketamine, um, then yeah, you need to re-relax them because you're gonna, they're gonna be fighting you, they're gonna be fighting the, the mobile vent that you have, they're gonna be, you know, they're gonna be bucking. Some people will say just continue to paralyze them regardless. I think that you should be more judicial in what you're doing and really continue to monitor the patient as long as you're using safe levels of sedation. Uh, and you're not going above like that five migs, per, that five migs per kilo number of like sedated. Yeah, as long as you're not doing that, um, then I think you're okay. I, th- I think that yeah, I would. So so the times that I've seen this in the trauma bay, um, where you you know coming off the sedation and usually sucks uh, is is what I've seen them coming off yeah. of, as opposed to the rocks, just because of the the nature of where I am in the hospital, they're gone by the time rock and vec will burn off. Yeah. Um, but. When they come off, they get two good tries at uh, non-paralytic, uh, keeping them under. So I'm like, give them drug, give them drug, and it, and it's it's almost like you're like, all right, yeah, we we gave it a good try, and yeah. it's still bucking, and we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and paralyze them again. But a second dose of paralytic in this situation, I think it would be rare from from my perspective. Yeah. Um, certainly within the realm of possibility, but not the not the standard care, not the practice that I'm most familiar or comfortable with. Um, so that's, that's kind of how, and, and really guys out there, as you listen to this, this, what we're talking about here, this should really kind of frame some discussion for you on your goals of getting out and meeting your anesthesia folks on your, on your base there, chat with them, talk to them about these things, get their opinions, recognize everyone's kind of got different opinions and, and apply the, the aspects of what we're talking about, where we're talking about doing this. We're talking about your, uh, you know, knees in the dirt next to somebody or in the back of a truck where the the common answer of yeah propofol is a great propofol is a wonderful drug mm-hmm. it requires refrigeration it also causes some hypotension and some other problems i love it in the er because i can go get it out of the refrigerator and i've got three nurses to sit and watch the patient and if they have an event they come and get me and they're like ah oh, this guy's having a problem you are uh it's you alone and unafraid on the frontiers of freedom with uh with probably vecuronium and ketamine and so being really comfortable and understand where where you are with that let that guide you as you go looking for the opportunity to give these medications. If you get fortunate enough to link in with anesthesia and do spend some time with them in the OR and do some, these are the conversations you want to have. Like, hey, this is what's in my bag. How can I, you know, what are these? And, and really get those opinions. Get comfortable with it. Dose it if you get the opportunity. Go to the ER and do some, 
some reductions under uh, subdissociative ketamine of, of fractures and, and dislocations because then you're going to get to see that medication and you're going to get to see the physiological effects of it and how the safety the safety mechanisms to, to do it um, in that environment because really for like I said I was a PA for you know eight nine years before I did this and became more comfortable with this medication still not super comfortable with it but I'm more comfortable today than I was and I hope that uh, you get that opportunity yourself. So the last thing that I want to talk about is the kind of the fact that uh, everything's pushing towards prolonged field care in this concept, right? Like that's the hot thing we've been talking about for the last couple of years. Uh, as Afghanistan is now closed, um, Iraq, I assume, is probably on its way towards that. Um, so, you know, sitting on patients for longer than an hour or two, uh, I start to wonder, like, how do we keep them down? Uh, a technique that I've seen in the past is they like taking a 250 mil bag, um, throwing 750 of, of ketamine in there, 25 of Versed, uh, and then, you know, taking body weight divide by two. Uh, and so, you know, roughly, you know, if we're using that hundred kilo patient, like throwing 50 cc's an hour into that, that guy to keep them down. And obviously you can titrate that to, uh, to effect. Um, but you know, I, I always worry about volume of drugs that I'm going to have access to. Because honestly, like the army supply system is not great, and they hate giving PAs drugs. I had more as an 18 delta than I do as a PA. If like, is that an easy way to dilute and titrate, or have, is there an easier way that you've seen to to keep these guys down for extended periods of time? If I'm throwing a, an ET tube, or should I just crack them and, and like just deal with pain management at that point? I, I I think that's a great question. I think that you know you wouldn't be wrong to crack them there. Um, I think that a lot of times you're going to see a little Monday morning quarterback out of the roll three, the roll two. They're, they're, Invariably, whatever you do is uh, you might just get questioned about, and that's that's all right. Yeah. Ha have a rational thought process. A lot of times, we we have to know and we have to recognize the complexity of the environment you're in. If you're sitting on somebody for 48, 60 hours out there, and they come in on a drip like that, and it's not the best thing, it might have been the best thing that you could put together with what you got in your aid bag. And I think that that's generally reasonable. It's not going to stop somebody from smarting off when they roll in, like, "Whoa, who's this guy doing?" Uh, just they, they may not realize, they may not know, they may, you know, they, in their mind, they're like, why not just propofol? And you're like, well, funny story. Uh, and so um, uh, know, know that. I think that what you just described there for a drip, if they showed up on it, I'd be like, yeah, cool. Um, sounds great. That's what you had. Yeah, and so, right. I agree. I agree. I would, I would, I don't really question what goes on before me. Uh, you know, that's kind of, you have, you have to use what you have. And, you know, if that's what you have, that's what you got to use. Because once again, you're just trying to take care of the patient. And I think all, I mean, that's, yeah, the, those, those doses would be totally reasonable. Uh, and then you just have to titrate it to whatever the, however the patient was responding, whatever you needed to do. All right, sweet. Hey, Tyler, I really appreciate your time, man, and answering all my, all my questions. Um, Grumpy, is there, is there anything else you want to hit, man? I can't think of one thing other than uh, we, we kind of, as we got to talking, we were getting uh, down the pathway of when do we eventually go to a peripheral nerve block. And I think that's a great segue to a future episode. So we may get in and talk about uh, blocks for pain control, particularly musculoskeletal and trauma injuries and those kind of things. We've had some recent successes here together as we've kind of managed some patients um, and, and saw them really be an efficacious mechanism to get pain control to avoid those big old doses of ketamine and fentanyl. And, um, and that's even back here in the hospital. And it gets a little harder for us to do out there in the point of injury, but I think we can tackle that in another episode and get to it. And uh, otherwise, I'm real glad to have this discussion as well. Thank you, Tyler. Yeah, it was a pleasure for sure. All right, guys, come tune in next time and we'll uh, we'll talk to you later. Just a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, the Grumpy PA and Pandemic Paul are just a couple of Army PAs giving you their opinions. 
Those opinions are not intended to represent the positions of the Department of Defense or the Department of the Army, and neither of us have any financial disclosures to make to you about what we've discussed in the podcast today.